Um, but we're, we started a series last week uh, in the book of Ephesians. I'm going to be walking our way through this whole book, this letter that Paul writes to the men and women uh, who have put their faith in Jesus that live in this city in Asia Minor called Ephesus. And as we make our way through this letter, we're going to be in this letter from now until Advent. Uh, the end of November is when Advent starts, so we'll be in this letter for about 11 or 12 weeks together. Uh, and as we make our way through it, we're first going to see the Apostle Paul draw our attention to our identity. He's going to talk a lot about our identity and who we are as those who have been called in Christ. So Christians are people who have been called to experience God's grace, to experience God's salvation through faith in the finished work of Jesus. That's, that's the identity of a Christian. And then the second half of the letter, Paul's going to move on to call us to live in light of that identity. So we're calling the series called in Christ, and we mean that in two senses of the word. We're called to be in Christ, to have that identity, and then in light of that identity, we're called to live, to live that out in all the places that God has sent us and, and put us. So last week we were in the first half of Ephesians chapter 1, which in the original language is this one really long run-on sentence where Paul just can't contain his joy and his excitement. He gets really excited about all of the spiritual blessings that are his through Jesus. And he gets really excited about how God has lavished his grace, the riches of his grace, upon Paul and upon all of these other saints, as he refers to them, in Ephesus. This week, uh, we're looking at another long run-on sentence. Paul does this sometimes in his letters. In the original language, the text we're in today, Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, it's another single run-on sentence. Um, but in this one, Paul changes his focus from praise of God, from this kind of doxology of praise, to a prayer. And he's praying for these first century men and women in Ephesus, and he's praying something very specific and very beautiful for them. So we're going to jump right in this morning, and we're just going to read that. You can follow along with me. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you ha he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. God, thank you for your word to us that we can know a little bit more of, of who you are, and we can know a little bit more of who we are, and that really the, really the sum of life is the knowledge of those two things, and the intersection of, of you breaking through 
and intervening in our lives to do what we could not do on our own. And we pray this morning that that would even be part of what you do in this, these brief moments together, that you would break through for the first time or for the millionth time. We need you to break through the hardness of our heart. Uh, we need you to open our eyes, to enlighten our eyes, to perceive your worth, Jesus, to perceive our identity as your called people, to learn how to live in an increasing way in light of the identity you have given us. So would you do that work in us? Would you use your word to guide us there? And we pray all this in your name. Amen. Uh, a little over, I think it's been eight years now, a little over eight years ago, I had LASIK done. Um, a lot of you are probably familiar with what that is, but just in case you're not, LASIK is a surgery where your cornea, the cornea in your eye, is reshaped by a laser beam, which always makes me wonder, like, who's the first person to sign up for that procedure before it's become such a normal thing? Easily for me, and I think for many people that I've talked to who've had this procedure done, the most uncomfortable thing about LASIK is that your eyes are open the whole time. Your eyes are open for the whole procedure. They tape your eyes open. And they have to be open because that's, that's part of the deal. Like, that's how it actually it works. But it's just a really strange uh, and really uncomfortable feeling to watch the surgeon use this little instrument on your taped open eye and make a little incision in your eyeball and then fold a flap of it back and then stare into a flashing beam of red light for a few minutes. Uh, the practice where I had this done, they actually encouraged all the patients who did this to take Valium. And it wasn't so much for the pain. It wasn't so much because it's a painful procedure. It's because they wanted you to relax enough to endure and tolerate somebody poking around in your eye like that because it's such an odd and awkward feeling. And I don't know if that's true. Like, eyes are really sensitive. I don't know if that's true for you. For me, I have this weird thing, like, about birds in confined spaces because I'm always afraid they're going to, like, go for my eyes. <laughs> so it's even more uncomfortable for, for someone who has a quirk like that, you know. Well, it struck me this week, as, as I was reading through the second half of Ephesians 1, that there are some really strong parallels between LASIK surgery and what Paul prays for these Christians living in Ephesus in the first century. And specifically, as Paul thanks God for these men and women, he also has this phrase in there. He prays that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened. Okay, what is Paul talking about when he says the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened? Well, for centuries, through literature and, and different culture and, and other ways of passing on communication, eyes are used as a metaphor for knowledge or for understanding. And in Scripture, there are these very specific references to inner eyes or eyes of the heart. And the metaphor there refers to our ability to perceive, to understand uh, the work that God has done and then the implications for, for our lives. And not only just to perceive that and understand that, but to actually then believe that with your heart, with the totality of who you are. The heart is this metaphor for our whole being, the seat of our emotions, the seat of our will. It's all that we are would, would see and perceive that. So each of us first has this need to have our eyes opened. And that's just really another way that, that the Bible talks about salvation, the salvation that's been accomplished by the work of Jesus. So in the book of Acts... Uh, the Apostle Paul, in a different setting, he's recounting the story of his own conversion and his commissioning to, to be an apostle. 
And he speaks about how he has been sent by God all around the Mediterranean to the Gentile people that God might open their eyes. And he says, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. So this image of open eyes has made its way into songs that we sing in the church. Uh, This well-known hymn, Amazing Grace, starts out, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. And then what? Was blind, but now I see. When John Newton wrote those words a couple centuries ago, he wasn't talking about physical blindness. He's speaking about spiritual blindness. He's talking about those inner eyes. And each of us needs those inner eyes to be opened so that we might, with with all that we are, at least in some measure, perceive our need for and the beauty of the work that Jesus has done. And then trust that work to rescue us from the guilt and from the corruption of our own sin. But Paul here is not praying for open eyes. He's praying for something different. He's praying for eyes to be enlightened. He prays that God would give a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation. But it's not, and this is really important, it's not a revelation of something new or something different. He's actually, when he prays that, praying for a deeper understanding of the same thing that we see when our eyes are initially opened. He's praying for a clearer perception of the same reality. And that's why this is a lot like LASIK surgery. Because your eyes are open for the process. Your eyes are open for the process. Paul is writing to these people who are already Christians. They're already called saints. And what he's praying for them is that they would have, you know, quite, quite truly, parts of their eyes cut away and reshaped that they might see, not, not that they might see something completely different, but that they might see the same reality more clearly. And let's just be, be real about this. We would prefer, left to ourselves, a different kind of eye surgery for the Christian life. We would prefer the kind of surgery where we get knocked out completely, you know, and then get to wake up when the whole thing is completely over. You know, the, the Christian life version of like general anesthesia. Knock me out and wake me up when Jesus comes again. We would prefer that. But that's not the way that it, that it works. That's not the way that it works. God opens our eyes and then they're open. And then as imperfectly as we might see, our eyes stay open to watch the rest of that process unfold. And it's an uncomfortable process. There's stuff to, to cut away, and there's stuff to reshape, and there's stuff to refocus, and you're awake for the whole experience. But that's what Paul's praying here for the Ephesian Christians in this text. That's what it means to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. And Paul specifically then references these three things that he wants these Christians to see more clearly with those enlightened eyes. And that's just what we're going to spend the rest of our time talking through this morning. Those three things are the hope of our calling, the riches of God's inheritance, and the greatness of God's power. The hope of our calling, the riches of God's inheritance, and the greatness of God's power. So first, Paul is praying for, and we need a a clearer perception of the hope of our calling. Epicurus was an ancient Greek philosopher, lived in the 4th and 3rd centuries B.C., and he's credited with this saying 
that over the next centuries became a common epitaph uh, on gravesites or, or near gravesites or on tombstones for thousands of people. And the saying goes like this, I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. Probably most of you are not like rushing to put that on your, your tombstone. It's actually still used uh, occasionally today at funerals by people who have a, a, human, uh, a humanistic worldview. Uh, a humanist worldview, I should say. But by the middle of the first century, uh, when Paul is visiting Ephesus, and, he's, and then writing this letter a few years later, it's quite likely that the Greek influence that's all over the, the Mediterranean at that point has made this a very common view among the Ephesian people. But do you hear the, the meaninglessness and the futility in those words? You know, I, I was, I was not, I am, I care not. I don't, I don't even care, you know. There's hopelessness in those words. But there's also something we should affirm about those words. They have intellectual integrity. They have intellectual integrity because if existence is just existence, if we didn't just come, you know, if we didn't come from somewhere, if we aren't going to somewhere, and if therefore we don't have meaning for the, the time in between those things, then truly that is meaningless. You know, that is futile. And any kind of quote-unquote hope that we might have would simply be this frantic attempt to create meaning where there is none. And that's, for, for Epicurus, that's how he understood the world. So to say a phrase like that just lines up completely with how he perceived reality. But Paul here is praying that the Ephesian Christians would know the hope to which they have been called. He, he's praying that they, that they would know that life is not meaningless at all, but rather filled with hope, and specifically because of their calling in Christ. And he's not talking about a head knowledge of hope when he says that. We saw last week in, in what he's already written in this letter, Christians are chosen, they're predestined, they're called people, and that God has given us his Holy Spirit to seal that as a guarantee for our inheritance. So Paul's already said that. He's not just repeating true statements, factual statements. Paul is praying for a deeply personal grasp that that these men and women reading this letter would really, in a personal way, deeply grasp that there is hope. Now, how does that pathway in our, in our souls get forged between a head knowledge of hope and a heart knowledge of hope? It happens by hardship, and it happens by trial, and it happens by suffering. It happens by having the eyes of your heart reshaped while they're open. And there are a lot of examples that we could use. You, I'm sure, have your own personal examples of what this has looked like in your life. But one that's been on my mind lately, and perhaps on yours as well, the Syrian refugee crisis. Syrian refugee crisis, it's at least 4 million people. It might be even more than that now. Syrian men, women, and children that have been displaced from their homes, fleeing war, they're, they're fleeing their homes without any guarantees that they're actually going to settle somewhere. And never mind the fact that, you know, when they actually do land somewhere, it's going to be in a, in a foreign nation where they have a better than average chance that they're going to be ostracized and marginalized and at least for an initial period of time, if not forever, viewed with suspicion and maybe never fully assimilated into that new place. So on top of, like, the unimaginable heartbreak and suffering that those 
men, women, and children are going through right now, what they're also experiencing is a moment where they discover if they have hope or if they have hope. Because if they only have this kind of hope, an intellectual idea, it's not going to mean a whole lot in a, in a circumstance like that in, in their lives. I don't, I don't know for you where you're experiencing hardship or trial or suffering in your life this morning. It's, it's perhaps not as extreme as the Syrian refugee crisis. But when those moments of trial and suffering and hardship come your way, if you, if you will, if you'll kind of stay in there, if you'll lean into it and not just try to, like, hit the eject button, that's what forges real hope. That's what forges deep confidence that God's work from eternity past to eternity future gives deep meaning and purpose to everything that happens in between. You might be able to affirm that up and down intellectually, but it's in those moments that you start to affirm that in your heart, the knowledge of the heart level of of hope. And Paul is praying for exactly that for the Ephesian men and women, and he's doing it not from a place of naivete. You know, Paul's writing these words while he himself is imprisoned in Rome. And we know about Paul's life. He suffered and went through lots of hardship and lots of trial. So he's praying for the same thing, the same hope that's been forged in him through that, that the Ephesian men and women might experience that same, that same thing. So clearer sight of the hope of our calling at that deep heart-level place. That's what Paul's praying for that we would see clearly. Second, we need a clearer perception of the riches of God's inheritance. The riches of God's inheritance. Now, a lot of you were with us last week. This is not the same thing that we saw earlier in Ephesians chapter 1. Last week we talked about inheritance some too. This is not the same thing. Um, In that passage that we looked at last week, Paul talks about our inheritance, as in the inheritance that belongs to those who are saved by Jesus. And we saw last week that, that our inheritance is God himself, You know, the good news of the gospel is not that in the end we get something else. The good news is that in the end we get him. We get God. He is our inheritance. But verse 18 here in Ephesians 1 isn't talking about our inheritance. It's talking about God's inheritance. And Paul prays that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance. Okay, what is God's inheritance? Like, what could he possibly inherit that he doesn't already possess, that he doesn't already have. Paul here says, the saints, that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We are God's inheritance. So not only is God our inheritance, but we are his inheritance. And if, if we're not just a little bit scandalized, if not a lot scandalized by that, then it's probably because we're missing how big that is. This is the the profound and counterintuitive love of God for his people. Love that that we don't deserve, love that we don't earn. It's hard enough sometimes to believe that God would be gracious and merciful enough to give himself as our inheritance, but that he would then value us enough to call us his inheritance almost defies comprehension. And we sang this song last week, we sang it periodically here at Liberty, called How He Loves Us. And in that song, there's a line that goes like this. We are his portion, and he is our prize. 
And that's what Paul is trying to capture in the first chapter of Ephesians 1. That through the work of Jesus, God's, God and God's people become one another's mutual inheritance. So God is, is our prize. He's our inheritance. He is what we get forever. And at the very same time, we are God's portion. We are God's inheritance. We, uh, as it talks about in the Westminster Catechism, our chief end, our chief purpose is going to be to enjoy God forever. So we enjoy him forever. What we also see here is that he enjoys us forever. So he's not just this gatekeeper who tolerates people entering his kingdom if they get close enough to be let in. He's a loving father who welcomes his children home. And God's people are precious to him in that way. And God is, and I, just if you could envision God's face looking over you with this emotion, he is joyfully anticipating welcoming you into perfect communion with himself forever. Because you, through the work of Jesus, are his inheritance. We need a clearer perception of that. And then third, we need a clearer perception of the greatness of God's power. Culturally, uh, power would have been a really important theme in the city of Ephesus. Many competing gods from the Roman Empire, from the Greek Empire, um, all those influences throughout Asia Minor, the occult and magic and superstition and the supernatural, it captivated the attention of the people that were living in Ephesus. And we actually read in Acts chapter 19 that when Paul stops there in Ephesus, uh, many people who practice the occult repent of that and they turn to trust the power of Jesus instead. And, it's actually, and as a tangible demonstration of that, they actually burn a lot of the tools of the trade that they used to use in practicing the occult. So that's part of Paul's background as he's writing this letter back to the city of Ephesus. And Paul is praying that the Ephesian men and women would more clearly see the greatness of God's power. How might they see more clearly the greatness of God's power? Well, through the greatest exertion of that power that the world has ever known, has ever witnessed. And it's the resurrection and then the exaltation of Jesus Christ. A scholar, pastor named John Stott uh, puts it this way. He says, the resurrection and the ascension were a decisive demonstration of divine power. For if, there, for if there are two powers which man cannot control, but which hold him in bondage, they are death and evil. Man is mortal, he cannot avoid death. Man is fallen, he cannot overcome evil. But God in Christ has conquered both, and therefore can rescue us from both. So the resurrection and the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus is God's greatest display of power. And as we hear Paul talk about that, it highlights two things in these verses. One is the cosmic and universal scope of that power. So nothing else compares to this. He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He's above everything that has ever had a name from eternity past and in the age to come, Paul says. But the other thing that comes out of these verses is that God's power is intensely personal. It's intensely personal. It's not just a demonstration of power for power's sake. You know, God's not the guy at the gym showing off how much he can bench, right? He uses his power for the good, for the benefit of us, 
for those who believe. It's God's power toward us who believe, is the way Paul says it there. So having our eyes enlightened to see both of those things and hold those things together helps us trust both the ability and the heart of God. The ability and the heart of God. If we only see the universal scope of God's power, then we're really likely to miss his heart. And God will feel to us distant and impersonal. He'll feel like a dictator. Yeah, he can get done what he needs to get done, but he doesn't really like us. And we don't really like him either. If we only see God's power, the the, the personal application of that, then we're likely to miss his ability and the scope of his ability. He becomes tame. He becomes limited in some way. Kind of like a genie that exists just to grant my wishes and what I think should happen in the world. But God is neither dictator nor genie. He's completely powerful but he applies that powerful in an intensely personal way. So let's bring all of these pieces together. All of this is what we are meant to see more clearly. You know, in our hope, in the hope of our calling, and because we are God's inheritance, and because he exerts his power for our benefit, and because even the best example of the demonstration of that power has placed Jesus now as head over the church, We, the church, we God's people, we get to be a tangible display of the fullness of Jesus. Okay, that's how Paul concludes the opening chapter of his letter to the Ephesians. With open and enlightened eyes, the church is the tangible expression of the fullness of Jesus. Okay, I don't know if I can ever really fully wrap my mind around that that we get to be the fullness, in a tangible way, the fullness of Jesus in the world. But we can at least from that, I hope, start to get a sense of the significance uh, and the stewardship that that bestows upon you and me. And this is what you hear it sometimes said um, from our liturgists or from me, that our aim as a church is to live and speak and serve as the very presence of Jesus for, for our time and place, for the Harrisburg region. This is what we mean when we say that. That we long to, as a church, embody the fullness of Jesus, the one who fills all in all. So as we pursue that together, how does that shape us? Being the fullness of Jesus, how does that shape us? Well, in a lot of ways, but a couple ideas. Embodying the fullness of Jesus, it defines and it solidifies our worth and our value as people. It defines and solidifies that. We don't have value and worth as people because of what we can accomplish or what we can produce or how good we are at the endeavors that we undertake. We have value and worth because it's been given. It's been given to us. And in John's gospel, we studied it last year in John chapter 1 verse 16, it says, from Jesus' fullness, we have received grace upon grace. So Jesus fills us up with his grace that we might then embody his fullness. And when that's our identity, and then when on top of that God would would dare to call us his inheritance, that's what defines and solidifies our worth and our value as his people. Embodying the fullness of Jesus shapes the way that we pursue holiness and the way that we fight sin in our lives. So do we fight sin because we're supposed to? Or do we fight sin because there are rules and commands in Scripture that tell us how to live and not to live? Well, I wish that was enough of a motive to actually bring that to fruition. 
I wish it was. It's not. But in this, you can pursue holiness because in the fullness of Jesus, and as the expression of the fullness of Jesus, we need not seek satisfaction anywhere else. And that fullness of Jesus, as he fills us up, it pushes out everything else. There isn't room for anything else if you are filled to the fullness of Jesus. So it pushes out the poison, and it pushes out the darkness, and it pushes out the death of our sin as it fills us with his light and with his life. And embodying the fullness of Jesus guides the way that we relate to people and relate to our culture and relate to the world around us. So do we have to choose as God's people that we either need to reject everything in our world and culture for fear of being corrupted by it, or on the other hand, accept everything for fear of being irrelevant or labeled intolerant or labeled unloving? Or is there a way, because of this, that we can love the world around us in a way that only you and I can because this is true. Like, if we are the fullness of Jesus, then truly we need nothing from the world. It has nothing for me that I don't already have from Jesus. But at the same time, we long for the world to experience everything that it means to be filled by the one who has filled us. And so we long for Jesus to be known and to be believed on and to be experienced in the world. It changes our posture if we are filled to the fullness of him. And we get to embody that fullness to the people and the culture and the world around us. And if you want to know the mark of Christian maturity, this is it. This is it. If you look at another Christian and you sense in him or her real maturity, you know, real maturity, not some information, some special knowledge, some technique or training program that people use to elevate themselves to places of superiority over one another, not that, genuine humble maturity, This is what that is. It's not that that those people have graduated to the next level. It's not that they have something more or something better or something different than you have. It's that as their eyes have been opened, those eyes have been enlightened to know Jesus and to embody his fullness. That flap has been folded back. That cornea has been reshaped to see Jesus more clearly. So let that be the mark of our maturity. A clearer sight of our need for Jesus and a clearer sight of the surpassing worth of his death and resurrection and the depth of love and the magnitude of his power that's demonstrated in those acts and a clearer sight of this hope of being cherished as God's inheritance. And as Paul prays this for the Ephesians, let's pray this for one another. Let's pray this for one another. I pray this for you. I long for this for you, and I would love it if you would pray this for me. And together, let's seek the grace of God that our eyes would be enlightened to know Jesus and to know what he's done, that we might embody the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, our eyes are dim. Our eyes are dim. We see dimly as in a mirror, and we long for the day that we see with complete perfection and clarity. And we know that the road from here to there is is long, and it's incremental, 
and that we might see clearly one day and have dim eyes again the next day. And so we're grateful, Jesus, that our place with you comes from you and your work and not our ability and not our efforts. And we ask that, Jesus, you would do that ongoing work in us. For any here who have never been able to perceive at all your beauty and your worth and, and their need for you, would you open their eyes? Would you open eyes to see the need that we all have for you and the need for the mercy that you give? For those of us who have had our eyes opened, however dimly or clearly we feel like we're seeing today, would you enlighten those eyes? Would you continue to sharpen them? Would you help us to, to abandon silly pursuits that maturity comes in something else? And would you help us to rest in the work that's already been done and have eyes that see that and perceive that more clearly? And as we come to this table and we remember every week that it's in your death, it's in your sacrifice and then your resurrection from the dead, would even coming to this table this morning be a reminder to come back, to drink again of your grace, to enjoy the gifts that you have given us, that you have done this to purchase us for yourself, to bring us into your family, to call us your own inheritance. Thank you for that gift. And we pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.